Good morning, grace and peace. We've already read a little bit our scripture text uh, in different iterations this morning, but we're going to read through it again in Psalm 16. So go ahead and turn there uh, in your pew Bible or pull it up on your phone. Uh, we're going to look at a psalm. Partly, uh, I really like looking at psalms because they're uh, the part of the Bible where God gives us his word to give back to him. Uh, they're the words that teach us how to use words with God. They're uh, cries of the soul that rise up out of the ordinary and often overwhelming circumstances that mark human life in a broken world. Uh, and it's pretty important to learn how to talk to God in those places. And in this psalm, David is very likely in circumstances that are marked by chaos. He's crying out that God would be his refuge, a place that you know, he could hide in. We don't know the exact details of the chaos because David's life, like mine and yours, was marked by a lot of chaos. Like it could have been that when he's staring down enemies that simply feel like they are too big to be beaten. It could be when he is fleeing as a consequence of his own failure or as a consequence of being betrayed. It could be that he's uh, overwhelmed with the chaos of a family ripped apart by his sin, by his children's sin. It it could be that he's uh, dealing with any number of the times in which he has to flee for his uh, very life from a spear hurled at him. Uh, Here's what we do know is that out of the chaos that can feel very familiar, David is praying in a way that, at least for me, feels a bit unfamiliar. Is that he is crying out to God with contentment in the midst of the chaos. I don't mean like that uh, feeling of pleasure or some emotional state of happiness. That's not kind of the image of contentment. But there is this quiet rest this settled satisfaction, this sustained confidence in which David, in the midst of chaos, cries out to God. How do we do that? How do we pray with contentment in the middle of chaos? That's what God wants to point us towards from Psalm 16 this morning as I read for us, follow along. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I'll not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. When the lions have fallen from me in pleasant places, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. It is trustworthy. 
It is true, and it is given to you in love. Let me pray for our time. Father, I pray that you would meet us here in this moment from the varied places uh, in which we entered into this room. That you would persuade us that we have no good apart from you. That you would fill us with a sense of delight, even in our whole being rejoicing. Because we're persuaded, Lord, of your reality and of your presence. Would you guide the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the show Friday Night Lights based on a book uh, written, I think, in the 80s about high school football uh, in Texas. Uh, but the show itself is about much more, like most good dramas are, than just uh, a sport. Um, it's a show that's about real people in the ordinary chaos of life. People who find themselves facing physical suffering or broken relationships or the loss of jobs or of opportunities or opponents who are better than they are. Uh, and throughout the series, uh, the protagonist, the lead character, Coach Taylor, has sort of this go-to mantra with his football team. Uh, that's really a message for more than just the football team, but you know, there's some dramatic set of setbacks or obstacles they have to overcome where they've just lost their way. And there'll be the you know, locker room scene where the dramatic music will, will cue, and Coach Taylor all of a sudden will you know, give the, the pep talk to his team, and he'll, he'll roll out his motto, which is this. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose, you know, and then the team will join in and off they go to face whatever obstacle they, they're, they're facing. And, and the point of his motto is, is something like this, is if you stay clear about who we are as a team and about what we're about, that, and you give your whole heart to it, your full heart to it, that in the end, no matter what's on that scoreboard, you will not have lost you can't lose with the clear eyes and the full hearts. And here's what I want to suggest for us this morning, is that in Psalm 16, Coach David is teaching us not to play, but to pray with clear eyes and with a full heart in light of the reality that you cannot lose. And that those three things are the crucial path to praying with contentment in the midst of chaos. To pray with the clear eyes and with the full heart in light of the confidence that you cannot lose. And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning is how do we pray with clear eyes? It's um, a clarity for David about where the good life is found. I really like that phrase, right? A good life. It's your vision of the way life is supposed to be lived. Uh, the vision of a life Maybe that you think, uh, this is what I was made for. Or a life that brings satisfaction, uh, that lingers longer than a brief moment. Or a life that you feel like is, this is a life that is both worth living and that I would say is well lived. And what David has clear eyes about is, is where the good life is found. And that David's vision of the good life is that it is not found simply in possessing the blessing of God but rather it is found in connection to the God of the blessing. It is found in connection to the God of the blessing. Look at verse 2. David says, I say to the Lord, 
You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. You're the Lord's sovereign. You're the one who rules and reigns over all the circumstances of my life, and you are sufficient. That's enough for me. You are my good. Connection to you is the good life. You know, sometimes we can have a vision of God as uh, the cosmic vending machine where you put in a quarter of faith and out comes, you know, the prepackaged product of blessing that you need to satisfy your craving. And that's sort of, we have this transactional relationship with them the way we do with other people. I do relationship with you because of what it will give me. But David's vision of the good life is not one of transaction, but it is one of connection. It is one in which, look, we may do these things, but they are towards the end of connection, not towards the end of, what, uh, of the transaction that I receive. Make sense? So David's vision of the good life is that at its core is about connection to the God of the blessing, not just a transaction that gets you the blessing of God. He, look at verse 5. The Lord, he says, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, a cup is um, a mark of destiny, right? It's uh, the future that awaits you. Think of uh, Jesus has talked about drinking the cup uh, of God's wrath, which we'll come back to a little later. And then he says, you hold my lot. Lot, think dice, right? A instrument of chance. Um, and what uh, the lines, he says, then have fallen for me in pleasant places. The, the imagery that's at work in David's prayer is Israel's possession of the promised land. The 12 tribes of Israel are head from a a journey from bondage in Egypt towards the promised land of Israel. Uh, God says, I'm going to give you to the land when it comes time to take possession of the land. Uh, It's not like a land grab, you know, like out in Oklahoma where people run from the start line and just grab what they want. But God has said, this is where this tribe has land and this is where this tribe's. But when it comes to the individual families, the lots were cast. And like, here is your plot. And David's saying with this imagery, look, I got the best plot. (laughs) I got the one that went with the, with the lush soil and, and the nice vista and, and the, the river that runs through it. it. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I, I'm, I'm contented because I am connected to the God of the blessing. Because in this imagery, um, there's something else at work. Because you see, there were 12 tribes and only 11 of them got land. The 12th tribe, the tribe of Levi, the priest actually didn't get land, but we're told you'll be taken care of by the generosity, by the the giving of the other tribes, your brothers. And and instead, your inheritance is going to be different. This is what God said uh, to Aaron the priest in in laying out his promises for the promised land and, and the book of Numbers. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people. Built into Israel's history is this object lesson uh, to them and to us, a modeling of where the real lasting good was found, not in the blessing of God, but in the God of blessing. And David is praying with very clear eyes, reminding himself, I think, that my good is found in connection to God. Because, honestly, it's kind of hard to have clear eyes. It's pretty easy to have cloudy vision. Is that we think the, the good life is often found in the blessing of God. Maybe, uh, uh, well, yes, maybe form the question. Uh, how do you know where you think the good life is found? Here's a, a good litmus test, I think, is when you're on a road trip uh, and, you know, the cornfields in Illinois or whatever you're driving through are just kind of blurring past uh, and your mind starts to wander, where does it go? Um, 
what are the things that you feel like you have to pursue in order to calm the troubled waters, or that if you lost would cause the calm waters to be troubled? Or, or maybe another litmus test for you. Uh, what are your, your if-onlys? If only I had a better job. If only a bigger grocery budget or a different house or lived in a different city. If only I was single again. If only I was married. If only we had a kid. If only I had other kids, right? Parents, you ever think that? If only they saw what I was really doing at work. If only I got a chance. If only the bed was made, <laughs> or the dishes were clean, or the project was over, or I don't know what it is for you, but here's what I do think is true, is that embedded in our if-onlys is our vision of the good life. And often what it does is it takes a good thing and treats it as an ultimate thing. It takes the blessing of God and acts as if it's more important than the God of the blessing. You see, discontentment at its core, I think, is the sense that what I need for the good life, I do not have. And what chaos does is it exposes our lack of security or freedom or power or control. Or what happens is this. You get the blessing of God, you get what you want, and you no longer want what you get. You ever had that moment? (laughs) Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. You run after the other God, David's saying. Look, their sorrows are just going to multiply because it can't deliver on what its promises. And so he's saying, I don't want anything to do with their offerings. I'm not going to put their names on my lips. Because chasing after the neighborhood gods gets you caught up in worshiping them. And that will always lead to a multiplication of your sorrows. Now, we might not think in terms of running after neighborhood gods. But there are plenty of neighborhood gods of ultimate things that run through the veins of our bodies or through the avenues of our culture that suggest to us that it is where real life is found. Uh, Let me maybe get at this through the words of one of the uh, best essayists of the past 50 years, a guy named David Foster Wallace, um, who was not a Christian, uh, uh, would actually take his own life eventually uh, at a place of despair, but he gave this really insightful commencement address uh, that was published as an essay called This is Water. This is what Foster Wallace looked at at a bunch of college students and uh, told them about the world. He said, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing, he says, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you're really tapping into for meaning in life, for the good life, then you will never have enough. You never feel, feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age start to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid. Fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing, says Wallace, about these forms of worship is that they are not evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They're the default setting. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that what you were, that's what you're doing. 
And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along Christ quite nicely on the full fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. The sorrows, the sorrows of those who chase after another god shall be multiplied. Because you get what you want, but it doesn't give what you want. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you, 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 I just want to ask this question, and, and you're chasing after the good life because you're wired to do it. Is, has the gap gone away between what you have and what you desire? Is it possible that, that maybe because even as you get the blessings of God, there really is a deeper ache for the God of the blessing? For you, Christian, here's my question for you. Have you forgotten? That God himself is where the good life is found. Clear eyes. That if you gain the whole world and lose him, you have nothing. Clear eyes. Clear eyes that flow out of a full heart. David is praying, I think, with a heart that is full, not just with eyes that are clear. Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Uh, The Hebrew word translated heart here is actually for kidneys. Um, So we tend to think sometimes heart as like uh, the emotive place of our being, like it's my feelings. Uh, David has something bigger and deeper in view than just your feeling center, uh, but it's really kind of a way of saying, um, like, the deepest part of who I am, uh, the inner workings of my person, that would include, you know, what we talk about as like our mind and our consciousness and our emotions, like that deepest, deepest place of me is full, not of anxious fear, (laughs) full not of worry or bitterness or complaint or anger that can often mark, you know, our kidneys. Uh, Rather, he says, I'm full of blessing, of this contented gratitude for God. Why? Because God has poured his counsel into his heart. It's like David is the cup and the counsel of God, the word of God, the promises of God are the pitcher that have been poured into the empty cup and it's now full. Or another image maybe of of the, the sink is full of the promises of God and David's inner being is like the dry sponge that's placed in and it is like soaked up. It is absorbed the counsel of God. And so the verse seven unfolds like this. God pours his counsel into me, his guidance, his instruction, his knowledge, and in the night, which in the Psalms is the time of meditation and prayer, that when I am still and quiet, what has been poured into me starts to well up out of me. So that David's heart is full of God's word, and that it starts then to give to him direction that gives the clarity, the the clear eyes for him. David says it this way, Uh, The Lord is always before me. Um, David's heart is full because it has been soaked in the promises of God. 
It, couple uh, applications for us. One is this. Um, if you've been a Christian for a while, it is very easy to forget the real differences that the counsel of God make to life. It's part of why a healthy church is always going to be filled with new believers and non-Christians, because part of what they remind us of is the difference that the counsels of God make for life. I, I remember one of my friends who I, I was kind of a five-year process of, of Stephanie becoming a Christian, and eventually she became a Christian. We were talking on the phone, and she was uh, talking about, uh, uh, at, kind of seeking some counsel about a relationship that was falling apart. And she said to me, she said, like, you know, this is the first relationship I've navigated as a Christian. I've had lots of other broken relationships before. And she said, I'm really sad and scared of what's going to happen, but I also feel weird, like I'm going to be okay without this other person. Is that Jesus doesn't, like, take away your relationship problems, but often he'll lead us into them, actually. Uh, But what happened is that for her, in her hardship, there was this hopefulness because she was beginning to be filled with the counsel of God that, that said the good life was still a possibility even as she lost this good relationship that mattered deeply to her. It, 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 here's how Cor Tempum put it, and I loved it, is that uh, you never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Or here's what her sister said. Uh, there is no pit so deep that he, God, is not deeper still. The counsel of God poured in makes a difference in how you view yourself and the world and your future. But here's, here's two, the uh, second application, is that you actually have resources full of full, for a fuller heart. And sometimes I'll read prayers like Psalm 16 or look at the lives of people in the Bible and I'm like left longing uh, or hear people tell stories and I feel like, man, I need like some deeper spiritual experience. Like, um, I want, like, the burning bush to show up outside of my house in the morning uh, and speak to me, and then the pillar of cloud to go in front of my accord and, like, lead me and, you know, as I go about my day. Um, or I want to have my eyes blinded on the road to Damascus, you know, and all the gods, that's how, that's how I became a Christian, uh, which is not at all how I became a Christian. you got to recognize, like, in the Bible, when extraordinary things happen, circumstances happen, God communicates in extraordinary ways, it's usually because there is an extraordinary call. Right? Like, hey, go to Pharaoh and lead a whole nation out of bondage and into a promised land. Hey, uh, I want you to be, you know, a church planning apostle that leads the church into a love for Gentiles, right? Like, the normal pattern, though, in the scriptures is that what God gives us for a full heart is the Bible and his providence. It's the word and providence. John the Baptist in the New Testament. Jesus said of John the Baptist, there is no one greater in the kingdom. John the Baptist believes in Jesus, John the Baptist is arrested, imprisoned, facing a likely beheading, which is what happens. And he sends two of his disciples to Jesus, and he says, hey, um, are you the one? <laughs> and Jesus sends the disciples back with what? A quote from Isaiah. Hey, tell them, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Those disciples got to see Jesus do those things. John the Baptist didn't. He just gets a report of the miracles Jesus had done to one who is the greatest in the kingdom. What Jesus gives is the word and providence because it was sufficient to fill his heart. When we consider the counsel of God, when we meditate upon it, when we pray upon it, it fills our heart to a place of cleaner vision. Like, yes, this is what I'm telling you. You need to read your Bible. Sometimes... 
I think we feel frustrated with the absence of real spiritual experience of our lives. And yet the reality is we have done very little to set before our empty hearts the counsel of God. So it's a bit like this. I'm like, hey, I really, John, want to get to know you better. Let's meet Tuesday for coffee. And then Tuesday rolls around and John stands me up and doesn't show up, but then sends me an email and is like, I'm so frustrated. I feel like you never show up. I don't know you anything about you. Like, I don't even know who you are. But he didn't come to coffee. Make it even more practical. Take 10 minutes this week. Take this psalm. Pick a phrase about who God is. A refuge, a beautiful inheritance at my right hand. Close your eyes, sit in quiet, and just try to hold that thought in front of your mind. It's not magic. It won't evaporate the angst. It'll be awkward and hard. Maybe for you, there are lots of other better ways to hold God's word, to let it soak into your heart like it's a sponge. But here's what I know. Full hearts don't just happen. But full hearts lead to clear eyes. And God has given you some wonderful promises to fill your heart. One of which is that because he is on our side, we cannot lose. We can pray with the confidence that, that, that this conclusion about our security that we cannot lose. I think it's what David is praying for, though he probably doesn't understand fully what he's even praying. He, he prays um, with a confidence that he can't lose in part because God is on his right side. Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Why? Because he is at my right side. I shall not be shaken. The promise has filled his heart, so he has this clear eyes that God is at his right side. Therefore, in verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. Now, the right side is an expression for a place of strength and importance. Here's the image. A line of warriors in battle. With your left hand, you hold your shield. With your right hand, the dominant hand, you fight. But as you engage in that battle, which part of your body is unprotected? It's not the left, but it's the right. And what you want in this line of battle on your right side is not the rookie. <laughs> it's not the guy who's learning the ropes, who's, who's like, do we hit high or low here? I don't remember. Right? Is you want the guy. Like, who has the experience and the know-how? You want, like, the mighty man. You want not just the mighty man. You want the warrior king who has been victorious in battle. And what David, the warrior king, who knows a thing or two about battle says, is that at my right hand is the sovereign king of the universe. And so I will not be shaken. At the place of my vulnerability, at my right side, my right-hand man, is God himself. And so I have this confidence that I cannot lose because the most vulnerable place is protected by strength and security. And then David gets, I think, even a little more, um, uh, it gets even better. Is that at the right side for David and at the right side for us is the resurrected warrior king who was defeated the ultimate enemy of sin and death and Satan. Look, look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. It, it's a place of the dead. Sometimes it can just mean where you go when you die, and sometimes it means the place of destruction. And here David is saying, look, you will not abandon me to the place where corruption happens, right? Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, 
And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Uh, Corruption here is is a metaphor for like isolation or banishment. And what David is saying is, look, you're at my right side. And what you're going to do is keep me from being cut off and abandoned to a place of destruction. And then, you hear it in verse 11, in your presence I'll have fullness of joy because you put me at your right hand. (laughs) Like, you're at my right side. I'm protected from the place of destruction and corruption, and you put me at your right side. But something else interesting is happening in this. Um, David said, you're my greatest one in need. Uh, I have you. And I can't lose you because you're at my right side. And so what I most want, I have. And what I most need cannot be taken away from me. Therefore, even in the chaos, I can have contentment. But, but then something interesting happens at the end of verse 10. Right? If you work through the psalm, David, the whole psalm talks about himself. Uh, in verse 5, uh, you are my allotted portion and cup. In verse 7, you're my heart. In, in verse 8, you're at my right hand. In verse 9, um, it talks about my heart. Uh, and uh, my being, my flesh. And and verse 10, it begins, uh, my soul. But look what happens at the end of verse 10. Or let your holy one see corruption. Now, it wouldn't be wrong necessarily to hear that and think, oh, David's just changing the way he's talking about himself. But that's not what happens in the New Testament. Is both Peter and Paul pick up this verse and quote it, and their argument is, is basically this. We know David died. He didn't get raised from the dead. David actually went to a place of destruction. So obviously, what David was talking about was one who was to come. One who would come, uh, who would come and who would not go into the place of distance and separation. One who would come as the heir to David, who would take his throne and who would... uh, would not be abandoned to corruption and to death itself. It is they apply this verse, the end of verse 10, to Jesus as he comes as the heir of David and as he enters into the battle of the cross and as he defeats death itself in his resurrection. Did it ever look like chaos had won any more than Good Friday? When the creatures crucify, when their creator, when those who are made for the good life with God take the very life of the Son of God, when Jesus who left The right hand of the Father takes up the cup of his wrath, not an inheritance, but where he is raised again from the dead to ascend now to the right hand of the Father. And that the resurrection opens this window of hope in which we can pray with a confidence that we cannot lose because we are those who live with one God but two worlds. As we are those who live with a living Christ, not a dead one. Andrew Murray put it this way, that a dead Christ I must do everything for, but a living Christ does everything for me. Brothers and sisters, at your right side is the resurrected warrior king who has defeated death himself and who has opened up a way into a new world so that whatever chaos is going on around you, that if you have clarity about where your real good is found, that if your heart is full with the promises that remind you of what that means, both now and for the future, is that what it can lead to is this embodied confidence that you cannot lose what you most need. I'm going to finish with a story uh, maybe familiar for those of you that know Lewis's Narnia Tales. Um, it's It's about how the whole thing sort of began. 
If, if you remember uh, Diggory in the Narnia tales, uh, when Diggory is in um, Narnia, he goes to Aslan, the god figure, the lion, and he asks him, uh, I know I have to leave Narnia, but I just want to take something with me. Like, can I just take an apple? Uh, can I take an apple from, from Narnia back to Earth? And Aslan consents, and Diggory takes the apple, and after he, the, the seeds from the apple uh, get planted in a yard, and slowly those apple seeds grow first into a little bush and eventually into an apple tree. And the tree gets cut down and milled for wood, and out of that wood a wardrobe gets built. Uh, and it's that wardrobe that becomes the portal into this magical world into this world of Narnia, is that the story went like this, is that something from the other world had to come into this world to open up a portal in order for a way forward to be found. Like Lewis is obviously, has these echoes of the true story of the gospel in which something from the other world, in which the incarnate Christ left the glory of heaven and entered in, to be turned into the wardrobe by the wood of the cross and the power of the resurrection to open up a portal into this resurrected world of renewal that isn't just out there that has actually begun with the first fruits of his resurrection. And that that gives to us, brothers and sisters, clear eyes and full hearts and the confidence that we cannot lose. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would uh, give us those things, that you'd give us real clarity about who you are and what you've done, that you'd fill our hearts up with that in a way that changes um, not just how we view the good life, but even how we embody this life, and that you'd, uh, oh Lord, it's hard to believe, would you help our unbelief that because Christ is resurrected, we cannot lose. Uh, We pray this in his name, amen.